This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon, everyone, and uh, thank you to the organizers here of CARTA uh, for inviting me to participate, and thank uh, all of you, great crowd, for coming out to, to see this fascinating topic explored. I tend sometimes to be accused of nihilism with regard to the origin of homo. Because my view is we actually know nothing about the origin of homo. (laughs) Just saying. (laughs) And the reason is simple in my view, is that while it is true that we have a pretty good fossil record of the genus Homo, the Homo lineage, as Bernard just finished explaining, by around two million years ago with some diversity and different different adaptive packages in different species, Erectus, Habilis, Rudolfensis, on the assumption that these three forms shared a common ancestor at some point, That common ancestor lived older than two million years ago in a period of time in which we have not a fender and a tire and a piece of gear shift, but in which we have a fragment of tire tread, (laughs) which we have a fragment of a headlight, and we are trying to reconstruct a history, evolutionary history of a group for which we basically have a car wreck. (laughs) And this is what we have to solve. This is the problem we have to solve. And this comes from field work. And I'm going to illustrate for you today, in in my view, where I think the genus, the homo lineage arose and where we have to redouble our efforts for increasing the representation of this lineage older than two million years ago. Now, as Bernard ably suggested, the modern history of the study of the evolution of the genus Homo really begins with, the, with the Louis Leakey and his colleagues and the recognition of the species Homo habilis in 1964. Based on material from Bedouin at Olduvai Gorge dated to between around 1.7 and 1.75 million years, they discerned in the type specimen of the species, Olduvai hominid 7, what they thought was a human-like dexterous ability in the hands. They discerned a notable increase in endocranial volume, brain size, in relation to then-known Australopithecus species, from, mostly from southern Africa, and a reduction in tooth size, which they saw as emblematic of an overall gracilization of the chewing apparatus in almost a human-like arrangement. And putting these three characteristics together with the plentiful stone tools that had been recovered for years in these sediments, they arrived at the conclusion that this species, Habilis, belonged near the base of the genus Homo. So convinced were they of this conclusion that Philip Tobias, one of the co-authors of the species, was able to write in 1965 that Homo habilis represented the last remaining major gap in the Pleistocene evolution of the genus Homo, a story of human evolution, to quote him directly. And in this phylogeny, shown here from one of Tobias's papers, you can see the genus Homo is represented 
as a single, gradually evolving line characterized by uniquely human characteristics related to large brain size, reduced canine teeth, a perfection of bipedal locomotion. As we now see it, a slowing down of the growth trajectory, technology, language, and so forth. This was a package of characteristics seen in modern humans and thought to go back in time to at least two million years as an integrated whole along this slowly emerging lineage culminating in Homo sapiens. The problem was, of course, is that older than two million years ago, there was virtually no fossil record that could be confidently associated uniquely with our lineage. And so whether these characteristics emerged piecemeal, stepwise, and therefore each demanding a separate explanation for origin, or whether they emerged as a package together, where one explanation would take care of them all, could not be discerned. Now, a lot has happened, as Bernard has pointed out, in the years since the early 1960s. And beginning in the 1980s, in large part due to the work that he and others have done in those years, we now see the genus Homo as a much more complicated uh, array of species. In my view, there are at least three broadly contemporaneous forms present at around two million years ago, whereas in 1964, the Leakeys would have said there's one in the genus Homo. Homo rudolfensis, Homo habilis, and Homo erectus. And one of the lessons that we have learned from the appreciation of greater diversity in our own genus at this period of time is the idea that there is not one adaptive package that can describe them all, but there are perhaps multiple ones. And the question is, which, if any, are germane to the origin of the lineage itself? Or are they all, in one form or another, subsequent developments to the establishment of the lineage? Following on Bernard's talking about Toyotas and Clades, my appreciation, my rendering of the information available from these three forms between around 1.7 and 2 million years ago, is that they do, in fact, constitute a monophyletic group. This is not the place to go into a detailed rendition about the evidence for it, but I think it speaks fairly clearly to the idea that these three at 2 million did, in fact, share a single unified ancestry predating that time period, uh, 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 moving back towards the 3 million year mark. And the question is, where is it? And who was it? And here's where we run up against the roadblock. Now, why is this important? More than just for the purposes of putting cladograms or phylogenies on the page, is because in the last decade or two, information from global climate change, paleoclimatic change, has made it clear that the time period in which many people suspect the Homo lineage arose was one of a very widespread, impactful change in global climate, creating a cooled, a cooled uh, uh, expansion of ice sheets, reduction in sea levels, drying out of the African interior. And that time period has been, has been focused right after the three million year mark. 2.8, 2.7, and so forth, 
And that trying out of Africa has been seen as motive in the origin of uh, the robust Australopithecines, the origin of the genus Homo, even to stone tool manufacture. This has become the prevailing hypothesis that the complexification, if you will, of hominids and the origin of technology is all associated with the local impacts of these global changes. The problem is that there's no fossil evidence for the genus Homo that is informative on exactly what those changes were at this particular point in time. We do have, of course, Oldowan tools at around 2.6 million, and as Bernard and others have pointed out, perhaps that is a proxy for the genus Homo, or maybe it isn't. It's not outside the realm of possibility, given what we know about how chimpanzees can make tools, that some Australopith was capable of making them too. So questions and an absence of evidence. And here is the, the sum total of the fossil record of the genus Homo between two and two and a half million years ago. It would fit in a shoebox and leave room for a decent pair of shoes. <laughs> All of these fossils have been, have been promoted by one person or another, one group or another, as identifying the genus Homo older than 2.0 million years ago, and all of them have been doubted. And I'm not going to go through them here to, 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 point the, to point out the weaknesses and strengths of the various arguments, other than to say that the very fact that there's debate can be traced to the fact that there's relatively little evidence. And this is why groups return to Africa go to the field to African sites in East Africa and South Africa all the time, focusing on this time period, which in my view is one of the most intriguing of all the time periods in human evolution to increase our understanding of the fossil record. One area where the group from the Institute of Human Origins, which I direct at ASU, has been focusing on, of course, for years is Ethiopia. We've worked at the Lucy site more or less continuously since 1990. And colleagues of mine, Dr. Kay Reed at ASU and Chris Camposano and others, have expanded the work, the IHO work in Ethiopia, to a place called Lady Gararu. The scene here is slightly north and east of the Hadar area. What attracted them to this area? Two things. Knowledge that the, um, the environments represented by the sediments in this area look different from those that were very common and well understood in the Lucy time period, older than 3 million, some 20, 30 kilometers away at Hadar. And second, the suspicion verified since then that the rocks may actually represent a slightly younger time period. And that's important because at Hadar, as you'll see, we have Lucy's species, Australopithecus afarensis, up to about 3 million years. And then we jump across three quarters of a million years and we have a jaw of Homo with some stone tools at 2.3 million. Lucy, Homo, older, younger, gap in the middle, let's try to fill it. And that was their mission. Now, in the lower Awash Valley, these areas around Hadar and Middle Lady and Gona and Dikika and Waranzo Mile, there are excellent sediments going backwards in time from around three million years ago. 
And we have an excellent set of sediments at places like Gona and Hadar that take us forward from around 2.5 million years ago. It is the time period in between that is critical and is germane to the questions about where the three forms of Homo that we know of at 2 million perhaps emerged from. And these sediments are present amply, now well studied, in the Lady Gararu area, spanning in, time, expanding in time from around 2.8 million years to about 2.6 million years. And what's really important to understand about these sediments, and this is both an advantage and a disadvantage, is that they are not continuous across time, but instead are exposed in fault blocks, adjacent fault blocks, which means that each block of sediment is a unified slice of time separated from another block next to it, which has itself a unified period of time with slight gaps in between them. Disadvantage because we can't trace evolutionary events continuously, but advantage because fossils that come, demonstrably come from particular fault blocks can be narrowed to a very narrow range of environments and associations with other animal species, etc. So a plus and a minus. And here is the Lady Gararu area. Kay and her team have been working here for more than a decade before they found their first hominid looking at the fauna, looking at the geology, trying to understand the environments. And by the way, this is an area called the Leodoita Basin, and you can see here, here's one fault block, here's another fault block, and here's a third fault block. There are about three or four fault blocks just exposed in this one view. Very clearly delineated. You can see one of the faults running right through here. Now, back in 2013, Kay and her group of paleontologists we're surveying an area in the Laodoita Basin called the Garumaha block, just in the one fault block. And at the, at the base of this one hillside, there's a volcanic ash that is now well dated, very precisely dated to 2.822, plus or minus a handful of years, in the million-year range. And um, on one winter's, our winter's day, uh, one of our graduate students at, at ASU, Chalacho Seom, was surveying up on this hillside and found this little jaw. That jaw eroded out of this hill, perhaps in a recent rainstorm, and resides about 10, maybe 12 meters above that volcanic ash. Right? And on the hillside, there are no sediments up above, younger, that the jaw could have floated down from. It eroded out of that hillside, and it's around 10 meters above the tough. So here's the jaw after it has been cleaned up, and I'm here to tell you that it answers some questions. Answers some very specific questions. Doesn't answer all the questions. But there's a myth out here in paleoanthropology that unless you have a complete skeleton, you're not prepared to answer any meaningful questions. And I wish to dispel that myth. You know, since Raymond Dart named Australopithecus in 1925, there have been a plethora of hominid species named, recognized. Australopithecus africanus, Paranthropus robustus, Paranthropus boisei, Homo habilis, on and on. Many of them, if not most of them, on the basis of material that we here today would consider at best imperfect. 
a fragment of a jaw, a bit of a brain case, some teeth. And the fact of the matter is, is that in the intervening years, the vast majority of those species recognized on the basis of imperfect material have been verified as to be meaningful evolutionary units. We are not at sea when we have small fragments. We are limited in the type of questions we can ask. If complete skeletons were the answer to all of our questions, then Lucy would have settled once and for all the debate about when early humans made a, a commitment to terrestrial bipedality. Instead, she generated what is now going on to five decades of debate about that question. It depends on the question. And this question, the question that we address to this jaw, is it the same thing as Australopithecus at 2.8 million, or is it something different? And I engaged in that question with my former PhD student, Brian Vilmore, now at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, and Chilacho Seum, our graduate student who found the jaw. And we came to the conclusion that in many respects it differs from your standard issue generalized Australopithecus jaw. Seen here on the left is a nice jaw of Lucy species, Australopithecus afarensis, and on the right is a reconstructed from a scan of the specimen from Lady Guerrero. We noticed that the jaw differs rather, these two jaws differ rather remarkably. The afarensis jaw is typically long and narrow with fat molar teeth, primitive premolars, and so forth. And our major comparison was to something like this. One of the jaws from the Demonisi site dated to about 1.8 million years, which is attributed to Homo erectus. And there's a much greater similarity in the shape of the dental arch, in the form of the teeth, the premolars being symmetrical and so forth, to this 1.8 million year old Homo erectus jaw than to, um, than, to, uh, than to Lucy's species. And it extends also to the architecture of the jaw, and I'm not going to go into the details here, but underneath the premolar, the afarensis jaw is characterized by a highly sculpted out contour like a chimpanzee, probably due to the very large canine teeth, absent in the Lady Gararu jaw, the, uh, the back part of the mandible where the vertical part called the ascending ramus arises from the body of the jaw is located in the, in the lady jaw well back over the third molar, not forward as it is in, in Lucy's species over the second molar. And the upper and lower boundaries of the, of the, of the, of the mandibular uh, borders beneath the teeth and at the base uh, are, are more or less parallel. And, and in Australopithecus, they're not gets shallower to the rear. And by the way, it's also true of Australopithecus africanus, which is slightly closer in age to the lady jaw in South Africa. The same kind of, of thing. So when we made the comparison to jaws of the genus Homo, later in time, obviously, because we don't have much in the two and a half to three million year period, the similarities were very apparent to us. This is a jaw that exhibits characteristics that forecast anatomy that is common, the most common anatomical pattern in jaws of the genus Homo younger than 2 million. So we published it in the, not quite a year ago in the journal Science as a 2.8 million year old jaw of the genus Homo. Now, does it answer questions about what were the adaptive packages present early on in the genus, in the lineage leading to us? Of course not. 
But what it does do is that it puts one data point in an area that is otherwise a void in the evolution of our own genus. Question is, what kind of environment did it live in? Did it live in a dry environment? Did it live in an open one? Germane to the questions about what drove early evolution of Homo. And data that's been put together by Kay Reed and given to me for this purpose shows that this jaw is found in a context of animal species that lived in essentially grassland environments. Very different in terms of how open or closed the habitats were compared to um, time periods in which Lucy's species lived. And this is just a couple hundred thousand years later. Now this, I, I hasten to add here, I am not asserting that the origin of the genus Homo is due to a drying out of the environment. But one thing we can say, because of the very confined time period of the Garumaha fault block in which the mandible and the fauna on which this inference is made suggest that the modal environmental signal at 2.8 in this area is one essentially of a grassland environment. And we can, we can see that by looking at some of the other animal fossils that have been found associated with the horizon from which that mandible has come. This is the Garumaha block. These are l salafine bovid frequencies and the horse frequencies, both of which, of course, are well-known grazers. And together, in the Garumaha block, they constitute nearly 40% of the macrofauna. Excludes elephants and hippos and stuff. I'm not saying it's dry. We're saying it's open. So it's 40% of the macrofauna. And that is very impressive compared to the frequencies back in Lucy's time, starting just 200,000 years earlier. Opens up areas for inquiry. And finally, some new data coming out of Kenya from Sonia Harman's group suggests that stone tool use, in fact, began not with the genus Homo, maybe, but perhaps as long ago as three and a half million years uh, when we have Australopithecus. And if these finds are verified, it opens up a whole new range of possibilities looking at the adaptive packages that constitute the ancestral platform from which the genus Homo emerged. And so, to finish up, here we have Lady Gararu, here we have our formerly first appearance, our former first appearance of stone tools, now pushed back here, perhaps, and does that imply that the genus Homo itself has even an earlier origin than we think of at 2.8, perhaps back as far as Lucy, or could Lucy herself have been the first stone tool maker? Thank you. We've heard a lot uh, at this point uh, about the evolution of hominins in Africa. Uh, uh, it's a complicated history, for sure. Uh, let me at this point just cut to the chase and say that humans moved out of Africa um, probably uh, just after two million years ago, and it will be that part of the record that I want to emphasize this afternoon. The site of Demenisi in the Georgian Caucasus 
is uh, very important, uh, records the oldest known, at this point, the oldest known occupations of Eurasia, beginning uh, before 1.85 million years ago. We don't actually have human remains that are that old, but certainly there are stone tools uh, approaching that date. The good part about Demenisi is that, in fact, we have not just scraps of headlamp and bumper and so forth, but virtually whole skeletons, and a number of them. Now, we have five skulls in various states of repair or disrepair. Along with them, there are postcranial bones uh, associated with one juvenile individual, particularly, perhaps, but not clearly associated uh, with one of the adults also. Uh, the material is extremely well-preserved. Um, we're very fortunate in that respect. Along with the humans, of course, there are animal bones, and many, many of them, and there is a, a very complete lithic record to go along with this material, which is well-preserved, as I say, in a, in a very carefully studied stratigraphic context. Several of the specimens from Demenisi have been, in the past, uh, likened to African Homo erectus, but the skeletons are quite primitive. One of them in particular is strikingly so, Skull 5, which I will talk about. Uh, at the moment, I think it's fair to say that the taxonomic identity and the paleobiological significance of the Demenisi materials um, remain controversial. Uh, certainly there have been plenty of suggestions, and I'm afraid I've been responsible for some of them, uh, but we'll see where things go. Demonisi is situated in Georgia. Georgia is stuck there between the Black Sea and the Caspian with Azerbaijan off to the east. Uh, from Tbilisi, the capital, uh, it's about an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes ride. Roads are pretty good these days. Roads were terrible 15 years ago. Things have improved. Down to the site, Demenisi is just a few kilometers from the Armenian border. Uh, this is the obligatory excavations in progress slide. Um, there are about four meters of sedimentary deposits at Demenisi. Much of the stuff is volcanic in origin. It's very ashy. Uh, there are some other sediments and silts, but ash is always a primary component, which is a good thing. Uh, the stratigraphy is complex. All of the sediments are piled atop the Mashavera basalt, which is about 1.85 million years old. That's the bottom of the site, the earliest record. 1.85 million years is the date obtained from radiometric methodology. It is secure. The stratigraphy, uh, <coughs> stratigraphy at the site is, is complex, partially because there are a number of piping features. Water was present near the site and during periods of heavy rain and so on. Uh, pipes formed underground and then progressed through uh, breaching to collapse toward the surface, filled with sediments, then got buried again. So, so it's been a mess. It's been very hard to sort it out. Um, our geologist, Reed Faring, has done a huge amount of work in this respect, huge in the Trumpian sense. Um, he's been... <laughs> but there have been problems. 
The first traces of human material were, were found at Demenisi in 1991. Excavations, in fact, had been underway at the site for, for quite a period of time before that. Uh, the site is underneath an old medieval town that was on the Silk Road. Uh, the archaeologists were busy at Demenisi for some time, poking around the foundations of the old buildings, and eventually they began to dig up stuff that didn't seem to belong there, not, not just the goats and fish bones from medieval suppers, but um, things that looked quite antique indeed. The paleontologists came in and ascertained that, yes, the material was ancient. Uh, excavations, deeper excavations, uh, got underway, and in 1991, the folks at Demonisi were rewarded with this jaw, the D211 mandible. Uh, it's remarkably complete. It's not, not all of it is there, but what there is is remarkably well-preserved. It's a small jaw, and in a number of respects, uh, it does look like Homo erectus. Uh, you've seen one reference to this specimen already, um, the teeth are about right for Homo erectus, as are the proportions of the mandible itself. Uh, the cranium, which turns out to be the match to the little mandible, was found later in 1999. D2282 was a small cranium, uh, very small capacity, surprisingly so, for Homo erectus. Um, only a bit more than 650 cc's in this case. Um, Despite the small brain, uh, the thing does share a number of characters with particularly early African erectus. This hulk turned up at the site in 2005. Um, it's way down at the bottom of the site, and within a few days after the fossil had been uncovered and cleaning was underway prior to trying to lift it out, uh, there was a very heavy rain. Uh, things were very nearly washed out. Of course, we have a cover over the site. There is protection, but it rained so much and so long that water began to trickle in around the sides of the excavations, and things were dicey for a while. Fortunately, uh, D4500 survived. Here it is all cleaned up. Um, it turns out that the cranium found in 2005 is a perfect match, once again, to a mandible, D2600, which had been found er earlier in the year 2000. Uh, the, the upper and the lower, the, the cranium and the mandible simply clicked together once the stuff had been cleaned off. There was no doubt at all. Uh, there is some pathology on the mandible that matches comparable pathology in the region of the ear of the cranium, so there is no doubt about the match. More than other Demenisi hominins, Skull 5, as this one is known, exhibits a very rust, uh, robust morphology. Uh, it's pretty clearly a male individual. Uh, determining sex in the case of these fossil hominins is, is often tricky, often can't be done uh, very accurately. But in this case, uh, we think we have a match uh, the skull says male all over. Uh, such a pattern 
given the fact that it has the smallest brain of all the Demonici hominins, is, is unexpected. <laughs> Normally, uh, for other primates, humans too, of course, but for, other, for, for primates, higher primates generally, uh, males tend to exceed the females in brain size by something like 8 to 10 to 15 percent. So having the, the tiniest brain attached to the most robust cranium and jaw is a bit surprising. You can see that there is a, a good deal of variation within the Demonisi assemblage. Uh, the little jaw goes with a smallish brain case, which is quite gracile in its construction. Uh, we've pegged that one skull number two as likely a female. Um, skull number five, on the other hand, is much more robust, clearly distinctive in a number of respects. Uh, number one is like Homo erectus. Number four is a, a small individual. Uh, that one seems to have lived to a ripe old age since it had lost almost its entire dentition. Maybe one tooth was still in place at the time the individual died. Uh, that one may or may not be male, we're not sure. Anyway, there is a, a great deal of diversity at Demonisi. Uh, uh, the crania do look different. This raises the question of how many species might be documented at the site. This is a, a question that's been plaguing us uh, for some time. I think myself, on the basis of the shared anatomy among the Demonisi individuals, they have a common bow plan uh, extending not just to the cranial vault but to the face insofar as we have it represented and also to the details of the cranial base. Um, suggest the, the common bow plan suggests uh, that all of the individuals are drawn from just one group uh, we've done extensive resampling analyses as well, which cause us to come to the same conclusion that really, in fact, uh, the skulls, the postcranial remains that go with them, uh, are drawn from just one population. Now, there is stratigraphic evidence relating to this question. It doesn't solve the question, of course, but it's, it's important information. It's good to know that the material was all... Uh, <coughs> washed into these deposits or arrived in the site by one means or another at about the same time. That is, the, the duration here can't be more than a few hundred or perhaps a thousand years or so, according to the best analyses conducted by the geological side of the team. We'll say then uh, that uh, it's very likely that the Demonisi assemblage samples a population belonging to a single species. I know there may be objections to this. I'm sure there will be. There have been in the past. If it's true, then such a situation is quite rare. Of course, at most localities where hominins are discovered, uh, you've heard a lot about uh, East Africa at this point, uh, Kubifora, Olduvai, also at Sangiran in Java, where there are uh, a number of fossils. The material is scattered through a very long sequence of deposits covering a long period in time. Time as a contributor variation just cannot be discounted. 
If the Dominici fossils document what we can call a population in the past, extending over uh, quite a number of years, of course, then the next question, the next important question, is how the Dominici sample may relate to the hominin taxa that have previously been recognized. Skull 5, of course, has a very small brain case, uh, a very large projecting face uh, in the vault, also in the basic cranium. Uh, There are some resemblances, not a lot, but some resemblances to Homo erectus. Skull 3, which I have not showed you a picture of before, is the subadult from Demonisi. Skull 3 is pictured here down below. Skull 3 is similar to Homo habilis. Uh, This is true for the brow ridge, the extent of brow ridge development. It's true particularly for the shape of the vault, the rounding at the back, and for the mid-facial profile. Uh, Skull 3, I must point out, is subadult, so we must allow for some extra growth to have occurred if the individual had grown up. It might have looked, uh, had it grown up, uh, a bit more robust and a bit like the skull to the left there, Homo habilis canimiar 1813. Skulls 2 and 4 also have their peculiar aspects, of course. Uh, they have a number of primitive characters, but they also share some features with Homo habilis. So, which species? There is, as I've pointed out, much variation within the, within the Demonisi paleodeme. Uh, this is not an easy question, the question as to which species may be represented. Skull 5, the very small-brained and very robust and very primitive-looking individual, does indeed share some characters with Australopithecus as well as Homo. So perhaps in this case, the line, uh, the division between Australopithecus on the one hand and earlier Homo on the other is not so clear-cut after all. Many of these shared similarities are primitive characters, and unfortunately they don't help us much in answering key questions about phylogenetic affinities. Other characters expressed in the Demonisi materials are Homo erectus-like, and pretty clearly they are specialized characters, characters that have changed during the course of evolution, characters that are said to be derived. Um, These characters include the form of the brow ridge, for example, which is large and bar-like, a little bit of midline keeling on the vault, Uh, details of uh, temporal bone construction, things of that sort on the underside of the vault. Indeed, when skulls one and two were first described back in the year 2000, uh, they were grouped with early Homo erectus from the Turkana Basin. If the fossils are included with Homo erectus, clearly that's One way to deal with the material is simply to lump it with Homo erectus. If that is the course we take, then it must be recognized that the boundaries between Homo erectus on the one hand and other early Homo taxa will become less distinct. It will be particularly difficult 
to distinguish early Homo erectus, African Homo erectus, from specimens attributed to earlier Homo, to Homo habilis in particular. Homo habilis uh, as considered apart from uh, Homo rudolfensis. So, to sum up at this point, uh, here is again a specious view of hominin phylogeny uh, done by Bernard Wood with Neve Leakey several years ago. Uh, you can read the caution sign. To sum up, then, uh, there is apparently no simple answer to the question as to which species may be represented at our site. Indeed, this question is often a tricky one. It's been a hard one for paleoanthropologists to deal with for a long time. In one view, this view expressed on the slide, uh, Dr. Wood showed you another version of this very specious hominin phylogeny. In that view, hominin evolution has produced a veritable flowering of lineages over more than six million years. Such bushiness, as it were, is particularly evident for the 2.5 to 1 million year ago interval, this interval in which uh, Paranthropus on the one hand, Australopithecus, and Homo uh, are represented by multiple species for each group. At Demonices, the fossils seem clearly to be Homo. Now, there are some points of overlap with Australopithecus, as I pointed out, but I would say, on balance, the evidence favors uh, grouping all of our fossils with the genus Homo. Very little doubt about that. At the same time, the assemblage at Demonisi does not fall neatly into one of the taxonomic packages that have been proposed. Homo habilis, Homo rudolfensis, Homo ergaster, Homo erectus, and so on. If I were pressed, and I do feel pressed at this point, <laughs> given the morphological resemblances of Demonisi to both Homo habilis in a very strict sense, just those fossils uh, allocated to Homo habilis, not to Homo rudolfensis. Given the resemblances of our material to Homo habilis and to early Homo erectus, particularly African Homo erectus, I would probably argue, I will argue, that it is most reasonable to place all of these fossils within a single evolutionary species. I would say that the Demonisi fossils constitute just one population within this unbranched lineage. Now, this is not to raise the specter of just one species at a time, or to suggest that there isn't a great deal of diversity in the hominin record. Clearly there was, particularly in that interval after about two and a half million years. But as far as our evidence is concerned, it seems to me the best way to go simply to place all the fossils within one evolutionary species. Then, of course, we'd have to argue about what to call it, but this is not the place for that. So... With that, thanks for listening. Thanks very much.
thanks very much uh, for, for this great afternoon uh, to all the speakers. And uh, I'm especially grateful for, uh, to Dan Lieberman for having set the stage with a lot of carnage and meat eating. Because the molecules I talk about today have to do with vertebrates and what we eat and what happens to it in our bodies. So <clears throat> this afternoon, I'd like to share an idea about a way that a molecule could be driving speciation and, and share some evidence for it in vivo, not in primates, but in mice. I'd like to start with, by acknowledging the people who've done some of the heavy lifting, including Fang Ma, who's back in Chengdu, a former lab member, and Darius Gaderi, and my team here, especially Stefan Springer and Miriam Cohn, as well as my collaborators, uh, Ajit Varki and, and his team. The kelp there in the background is actually an analogy I use when I talk about the glycocalyx. Every living life, every living cell, has a sugar coat called glycocalyx, which consists of glycolipids and glycoproteins that completely cover the cell and give it its molecular identity. These molecules swing around very much like the kelp in the ocean right here. And if we make ourselves hundreds of millions of times smaller and land on a cell, one of my favorite cells, a mammalian sperm cell, we would see something that reminds us of one of these kelp forests. These are the glycolipids and glycoproteins. All of them share short sugar chains on them. Each little sugar is about one nanometer big. And what they share is that most of these chains terminate in a sugar called sialic acid that helps define the identity of the cell type, and it tells the body that this is a self-cell. So sialic acid can be thought of as a very potent self-signal. To, you can visualize them here with an antibody, and you see the entire surface of the sperm, its payload, so to speak, is the haploid genome in blue, and the surface of the, of the sperm is completely covered in sialic acids. To go back to the kelp analogy, Macrocystis kelp has these big terminal bulbs that help it float, and it defines the outer edge, the molecular frontier of every cell, uh, that's what you can think of uh, as silic acids. They're very important because they're telling the body that this is self. And they play roles in fertilization, in gestation, in development, including during pregnancy. Peter Medawar, many years ago, coined the phrase the immunological paradox of mammalian pregnancy, where a female, a mother, is gestating an individual that is genetically not identical to her, within her body, in a very intimate contact. The interface between the fetal cells of the trophoblast and the mother includes these silic acids, these sugar molecules found on, self sur on cell surfaces of all vertebrates. This matters. It can be quite dramatic. This young fellow here was born in 1963, and he had a problem. His mother was type O and had a lot of antibodies against type A blood, and had a former son, and his father was type A. So what happened during the pregnancy is that the antibodies that his mother were making passed through the placenta and almost killed him. He was born with massive uh, <coughs> hemolytic disease of the newborn that had only been described a couple of years earlier. And it's only because he was given two complete blood transfusions that he can stand here today and give a talk. <laughs> so sugars and mismatches in sugars are really important. But I would like to propose that there is another immunological paradox, and it's the one about mammalian fertilization. How do sperm manage to survive this journey from insemination to the place of fertilization way up in the ampulla of the oviduct? 
If you think back when you were a sperm, <coughs> the reproductive tract of your mother was about the equivalent of six kilometers. We're back to running. <coughs> of course, hundreds of millions of potential ewes were inseminated, but only one made it up all the way to the ampulla. And that is partly due to a massive influx of immune cells of the mother upon insemination that take out and actively kill, potentially select, most of the sperm. Only a few hundreds make it to the oviduct, where they capacitate, they start sprinting, galloping, and one of them meets the egg and fertilizes it. So females may be scrutinizing and even selecting sperm. Why would they do that? Well, one thing they may have to look for, out for is, is it the correct species? <clears throat> Male mammals are quite famous for trying to mate with anything that is shaved roughly like that. <laughs> but the female might be interested in, in some readout of the fitness of the male who made the sperm, or in the fact that the male is genetically compatible. And also, more importantly, that the sperm is still functional. Wasting one precious egg on a sperm that already lost its acrosome and is not... Uh, uh, not fit to make a, a surviving embryo would be a terrible waste. So <clears throat> I come back to the sialic acid on the surface of cells. And in <clears throat> most mammals, the two most common sialic acids are called <clears throat> N-acetylneuraminic acid and N-glycolineuraminic acid, AC and GC for short. What is interesting is that there's an enzyme that modifies AC to GC. And humans are natural knockouts. This is work by Ajit Varki's um, uh, laboratory that over the last 15 years has found the mechanism. We are knockout for a gene. There was a, an insertion of a selfish piece of DNA that destroyed the gene. We cannot make the GC anymore. All of us in this room are pure AC on our cell surfaces. So the cell surface of a human differs dramatically from that of most other mammals. So with all our close living ape relatives, we share AC. But because of a mutation that is quite well-timed with three different methods, <clears throat> using coalescence, molecular clock, and the, alu, the type of alu element that is present, we know that this mutation happened between two and three million years ago, <clears throat> and we know that it causes us to only have one type of sugar on our cell surface, of sialic acid. <clears throat> now, you'd think it's a tiny, tiny change in, in DNA. Why could this be a big deal? I haven't mentioned that your average cell has tens to hundreds of millions of this molecule. So a tiny change in your DNA changes the flavor, the molecular flavor of your cells <coughs> in a big way. A human cell would appear in one flavor and a non-human cell in a completely different flavor. What could have driven this? You're looking at this, a model of a cell surface of a red blood cell, which make up over 80% of all your cells, and they're targeted by some of the most important pathogens we know for humankind, such as falciparum malaria. This molecule encircled is glycophorin A that carries a lot of sialic acid, which malaria uses to get into the host. So a couple of years back with Ajit, we commented on the fact that it is known that the apes that still make most of our great ape cousins sick, they use the sialic acid that we don't have anymore. They cannot infect us. So one possible driving force for the loss of the sugar initially might have been to escape a pathogen such as an ancestral malaria. We got a nice break. Unfortunately, much, much later in the Neolithic with agriculture and, and the expansion of, of Anopheles mosquito species, malaria caught up with us with a vengeance and is now highly specific for the sugar we have on human cells. Now, interestingly, <clears throat> as we've heard, 
somewhere along the line to Homo, we became top predators. And we regularly engage in hunting or scavenging or a combination of both. And when you eat this non-human sugar, you actually incorporate it and you start making an immune reaction to it. So after having lost the sugar, we started getting regularly immunized to it and making antibodies. And there is ongoing work showing that this is incorporated, is relevant for, for, for modern Homo sapiens. All of us who eat red meat, which is the biggest source of this non-human sugar, continue to immunize ourselves and to incorporate it. So several years back, we asked, well, could it be that if sperm differs so dramatically, <clears throat> that a change in cell surface sugars could actually have been involved in this reproductive incompatibility that I was unlucky enough to suffer from when I was born? That was ABO blood groups, very unusual, a rare case. But this would have been a very powerful point, <clears throat> a way to immunize the mother against the sugar she doesn't have. Could this have been involved, this mutation, the fixation of it, could that have been driven? Could, have, could that have driven the speciation along the lineage to, to modern Homo? So one thing we could do at the time is <clears throat> obtain chimpanzee sperm in a non-invasive fashion. I shall not go into details. And expose those chimpanzee sperm to human sera with antibodies and show that they die. But the reverse is not true. We could also show that complement gets deposited on sperm it seems to be an antibody-driven killing mechanism in human serum. Luckily, by then, there was a model mouse that carried the same mutation that we humans carry. You can see that the, uh, the wild-type mouse has the non-human sialic acid on its sperm. The knockout mouse doesn't. And so we said, well, <clears throat> let's use these mice to prove whether this mechanism can function. And we could show that, yes, the immunized mice would, would have, make antibodies that stick to the sperm. The two groups of females we mated with different males had similar comparable levels. And there were antibodies, very importantly, in the female reproductive tract of these mice. So that would be a way to model female immunity being hostile to the ancestral molecule. And after hundreds of mating experiments, Effectively, the only group of pairings where there was a 30% reduction in fertility was with females lacking a sugar, <clears throat> making antibodies against a sugar that was on sperm that was mismatched. Now, 30% <clears throat> reduction in, in fertility is that important. Could that drive speciation? And this is where Steven Springer came in and... <clears throat> came up with an instantaneous model of selection with payoff matrices of all possible combination between the genotypes of males and females. Interestingly, this process could not start by sexual selection. This is a type of sexual selection, female immunity, punishing sperm for carrying the wrong sugar. But if a pathogen were to introduce and favor the mutation, very quickly, as the frequency of the mutation rises in the females, Males get rewarded by also losing the sugar because they gain compatibility. <clears throat> and after a certain moment, you can cross a threshold from negative selection in females, in pink, to a net positive selection in black. In males, as soon as there is enough females that lack the sugar, it is worth losing the sugar so that you gain compatibility. We modeled the effect of both <clears throat> the, 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 uh, the degree of incompatibility and promiscuity, and it, it, it showed that <clears throat> with a promiscuity of about three matings per ovulation, 
So a female would have to mate between two and five males for each egg, and a frequency of only about 0.4%, which is you know, one in 25 females would be homozygous. This process would become a directional selection fixing the allele. So in a cartoon version, the idea is that pathogens are permanently driving the sugars on your cell surfaces. That's why we have blood groups. But usually these changes go back and forth. And they generate selection that oscillates and results in polymorphisms that do not fix. But if this, this process comes under sexual selection via female antibodies against molecules on the sperm, you have directional selection that rapidly fixes the loss of function mutation. So what we pro propose might have happened somewhere in the past and possibly at the beginning of the genus Homo is a very important pathogen driving changes in the glycocalyx of the host. Some of the hosts would have been homozygous. They would have looked very different. The females, by virtue of their new mode of life with much hunting and contact with other animal products, would have been immunized against this sugar. That immunity also protected them from infection from these bugs, but it would preclude optimal compatibility with males that still had the ancestral molecule, eventually driving a part two population, even within the same <coughs> sympatric environment, so as a model for sympatric speciation of ancestral hominids. The hope now is to get fossil material to actually look for incorporated monosaccharides as far back as three or four million years and find out which lineages still had both sugars as opposed to which lineages already had just one sugar and would make better candidates for our ancestors. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.